Welcome to episode 21 of Once Upon a Lifetime. Welcome back to Once Upon a Lifetime. Our last episode ended with life returning to some idea of normalcy for Andrew Carnegie after the homestead battle, which is considered the most violent labor management dispute in history. We're going to... He's also had a baby, Margaret, and bought a manor house in Scotland called Skibo. But in spite of this domestic tranquility, not all is perfect. There is a bit of trouble brewing with a few of the Carnegie partners at this point, even those who are really close, like Henry Phipps, who was very close to him friendship-wise, was getting really exasperated by constant improvements to the plants because it meant that they were very rich men on paper, but nearly all of that money was going back into the business, and they just weren't seeing the benefits they wanted to in terms of lifestyle. I mean, none of them was like scrimping or saving, you know, but they could have been riding higher on the hog and they wanted to be. So Phipps compared being a senior Carnegie partner to the fabled Philip Nolan, who was the man without a country and wandered the globe, always spying land, but never landing. He said, we would get in sight of dividends and then a new ship, a new voyage, and we would never land each time a newer and deeper disappointment. So they're biggering and biggering their business, and they're just not really... They can't enjoy those profits like they want to. Right. I mean, Carnegie seems to be enjoying plenty of profits, but no one else had the same share in the company. So their dividends were smaller, and they wanted to cash in, more or less. Phipps had already wanted to cash out his shares for over a decade. He'd been trying to. But at 16%, it was going to take a lot of years for the partners to buy him out with that ironclad agreement and he was just kind of nervous and anxious about getting the money out of the company and Carnegie was not getting that he kept thinking like why are you so uncomfortable you're just unjustifiably nervous here that next year in 98 they do move to Skibo and I love that Louise arranged the surprise for Carnegie usually he would be the one to hire the organist and things but she hires an organist and as they're walking into the house for the first time she has him play beethoven's fifth <laughs> which is weird because that's dun 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 <laughs> like it's a little ominous isn't it i'm just imagining it echoing through the, <laughs> the i know oh gosh but he loved it he just thought that was fabulous well it was big and grand and he just loved that about music. He didn't mm-hmm. like ostentatious living, but I think the organ is kind of an ostentatious instrument. And Absolutely. He just loved it. This is also the time where he begins to get very vocal about his anti-imperialist leanings. He just hates the idea of America becoming, having all of these lands out there that it's responsible for. He finds it just really hypocritical and un-American to have colonies. But the Spanish-American War had ended and Spain was basically at a discount selling the Philippines to America for 20 million pounds. And it was going to be, you know, in part of the treaty as part of the Treaty of Paris. So Andrew just gets super obsessed. He's writing articles and giving speeches and writing 
letters ad nauseum to President McKinley trying to get him to not sign this treaty because that would turn us into colonizers and that's just not American and we shouldn't do that. In the meantime, those same kind of discontented partners really wanted to sell out. They wanted to sell the business. They wanted to get the money out of the business that they'd always been putting into it all these years. And so Frick and Phipps set up a deal with a mystery investor. And this investor was willing to buy an option on the Carnegie Steel, which is sort of a down payment and also gives him the right to buy the company within a specified period of time. So this down payment, this option, was a demonstration of good faith because Andrew Carnegie was not allowed to know who it was. So it was just a matter of, do I trust this person or not? You've got to give me some money. So he says, give me $2 million and then I'll know you're in good faith, whoever you are, and we'll continue forward with the negotiations. So the reason it was a secret it was a mystery investor, was that it was actually a stock speculator named Moore. There were two Moores, and they were brothers, and Andrew did not respect them at all because they would manipulate the stock market and make money for money, and Andrew hated that. He just wanted everyone to be manufacturers and make actual products and sell them and better the world with their services or products. Moore could not come up with enough money, so Frick and Phipps each paid part of this down payment themselves out of their own pocket. And they assumed that once the deal was made, Andrew would give them back that money. They also arranged that they were each going to get a $5 million commission for having put this deal through. Ooh, but they shady. Yeah, very shady. And they kept that from Andrew. <sighs> Andrew, not knowing that they were keeping this from him, gave them power of attorney for him. No. Yeah, because <laughs> he trusts them. Oh, no. These are years long. These are decades long friendships. And he's, you know, he's ready to sell if the right buyer comes along. The biggest problem for Andrew Carnegie selling his steel company is that nobody has enough money to buy it. So if anyone can work up enough financing to buy it, he's like, eh, you know, talk to me. Like, we'll talk about it. Figure it out. Well, the press got a hold of who this mystery buyer was, and it got into the papers, and Andrew heard about it. And he was so hurt and he felt so deceived and he had just been schnookered into dealing with this shady guy who he never respected in the first place. Um, so he does not refund Phipps and Frick. They had each paid $170,000 mm-hmm. to sort of get that down payment done. Well, the option expires, which means that stock speculator more no longer has the right to buy Carnegie and Company, and he loses that down payment because that was kind of Andrew's only way, really, of saying, not cool, guys. <laughs> and things just got messy after this, honest to goodness, really messy. Um, Frick would badmouth Andrew in meetings, and Andrew was extra critical of any deal that Frick would make. Andrew was better at not criticizing Frick in public by name, but he would criticize the things that Frick was doing. And so it was all kind of the same thing. They were they were just at each other. But there was a real declaration of war, is the way Cousin Dodd put it. Because remember that Carnegie still has a majority stock in the Henry Clay Frick Coke Company. So Frick is the president of that company, but he does not own most of it. So he can no longer really make all the decisions. And there's a board. Well, Dodd was Carnegie's representative at this board meeting. And he says, Dodd says, Carnegie and Frick made a deal that they were going to sell 
Coke at a hundred at a dollar thirty-five a ton for the next five years. But it wasn't in writing. Oh. In the past, this would not even be a thing. Because who actually owns Henry Clay Frick Coke Company? Carnegie. So if he says we're selling to Carnegie Steel for one thirty-five then that's what happens. They are in cahoots together. They work together. This is what they do. Well, because of all this friction, Frick decides to deny the fact that he'd made that deal. Oh, gosh. And Dodd, Carnegie's representative, is like, it's a declaration of war. He's now openly defying you and trying to mess with business. And that is just not acceptable. So then there was another board meeting, but this time it was for Carnegie Steel. And Frick is at that meeting and he just loses his mind at this meeting. And he calls Carnegie a bad businessman, a backstabber. He just spirals. So obviously, Andrew hears about this and he writes him. He kind of tries to be conciliatory, but he mostly sounds condescending when you read the letter. Like, oh, you, you're not well. You young, <laughs> crazy thing, you know? And, well, like, I mean, when people tell you something like, calm down, right. it usually has the opposite effect. And it did, because that did not work well. But Dodd says to Carnegie, listen, you're going to have to oust Frick from both businesses, because he's thrown down the gauntlet. He's burning bridges. It's just the time has come. We've been dealing with his temper tantrums long enough. I haven't mentioned it, but at two different periods of time before this, when Frick and Carnegie had butted heads over something in business, Frick had sort of like stormed out and resigned. And both times, eventually, Carnegie like brings him back to, you know, so they, they feel like he's this kind of, he's bouncing off the walls. He's, and, and this is like his worst ever um, spiral. So Frick resigns as the CEO um, because he knows that Carnegie is going to ask him to resign. So he he kind of beats him to it and he resigns. But he's still on the board. He's still a partner of Carnegie Steel. December 5th, 1899 is when things between Frick and Carnegie sort of really get ruptured. Andrew actually attends a board meeting of the Coke company, and he squeaks out a five to two vote in favor of that one dollar and thirty five cents per ton deal. Frick storms out and says he's going to talk to his lawyers. The next day, Andrew comes to Frick's office and he says, how about instead of a five year deal like you agreed to before, we'll just do a two year deal. So he's kind of trying to meet him in the middle. Frick is too angry to say yes to that. And he's realizing as this conversation is progressing that Carnegie holds all the cards and it's just making him matter and matter. So he says, look, how about you buy me out of the Carnegie company and I'll buy you out of the Coke company and we'll just go our separate ways. And Andrew says, "Mm, no, I don't want to do that. And so Frick gets madder and madder and madder until he's screaming and yelling and slamming his fist on the day. Carnegie, like, sort of scampers out of the room, they said, with this, like, sort of terrified look. I mean, it's, it's about to get violent. Oh, no. Then that day, Andrew calls this emergency board meeting of the Carnegie Steel Company. And he invokes the clause in the ironclad that requires a three-quarter vote. And they kick Frick out of the partnership, which means that Frick 
is going to get that book value price for his stocks, which is, as we all know, three to five times less. So they offer him about $5 million. You'd think that'd be a lot, but it's a lot less than he ought to have gotten. So he brings suit. And it is all over the newspapers. The newspapers are like, oh my gosh, this is the best. We've got betrayal and deceit and violence and backstabbing. (laughs) Months of stories. Months of stories. And there's a big reveal. Because through that court case, all of the Carnegie Steel profits had to be revealed. So now suddenly everybody knows that they made $21 million dollars the last year and that they predicted making 40 million dollars plus the next year this is a disaster for Carnegie Steel so Frick bringing this suit I mean he really he knew what he was doing and this was how he got back not only did he get back at him that way they actually ended up settling and he ended up with 30 million dollars which was about what his stock would have been worth on the market so he won in a lot of different ways but it ate him up his whole life. I mean, he was well, bitter, bitter and yes. angry his whole life about this. Andrew referred to this as a divorce. So he was angry for a while. But as Andrew is, he just can't hold a grudge. He really can't hold on to it for years. So after a while, he sent him a letter and he said, let's meet and put the past behind us and make things right. And Frick responded, with meet me in hell where we're both going (laughs) so (laughs) it didn't end well oh god it was not a uh a happy divorce oh that that would be the one thing calculated to upset andrew too i think yeah yeah it's interesting too henry clay frick if i did not realize this till reading about him but Mm -hmm. In all the art museums, an enormous amount of art has been donated by Henry Clay Frick. So his thing, if you know, Andrew's thing is primarily libraries. Right. Frick's thing is art. So, you know, now we see it and we have a little backstory. Yes. To those yes. little plaques in the art museums. His great granddaughter, one of the Marthas, um, Martha Frick Symington Sanger, she wrote a biography of him and she says that a lot of the art that he collected personally, she reads into it like it's almost a code that you can see like every piece of art is in some way connected with a sense of like loss or grieving, she supposes from his daughter, from the loss of his daughter. So I don't know if she's reading like a lot into it. I imagine after generations of Martha's and all this sadness, one one does tend to see that everywhere. But right, that's it's true. An interesting idea, though. So after the split with Frick, the divorce, Frick was going around saying that he was responsible for Carnegie Steel's success, that it was really all Frick's doing, and Andrew was very proud of what he had accomplished. And so he wanted to stand up for himself. And so instead of retiring, as Louise wanted him to, he actually kind of doubled down back into the business world more so than he had been before. He'd been sort of half retired or mostly retired. Well, he was famous for having that four hour work day where he would just do that little bit of business and then devote the rest of his day to the systematic reading or saving the world or whatever he was going to do that day. So now he's still does that kind of, but he gets more involved. He starts making more decisions and um, less delegating, less delegating, more action. 
And in the meantime, J. Pierpont Morgan, who is J.P. Morgan, the bank, had decided to dip his toe into steel production. And he's going to start producing tubes, steel tubing, Hmm. which is not what Carnegie Steel did. But Carnegie decides he doesn't really want to let Morgan in on this industry. He doesn't really feel like doing that. So he decides to challenge him and start a new tube steel production plant <laughs> up near Lake Erie. He must have seen like the future is tubes like that. That's... Well, it was. <laughs> what, are, what are they using the tubes for? Uh, Do we know? Unclear to me anyway. Uh-huh. Was not. I, I never did look deep into the tube situation. Well, maybe people are starting to like. Plumbing and electricity and things like that. It might be. It might be. But they had been making... They used copper and lead. Who knows? I don't know what they were making, but they were using the steel before to be steel plating for the warships. They were doing armaments in in the Homestead factory, and they were doing ingots and and more like raw steel that could be sold and then turned into other things at the um, Braddock plant, the Edgar Thompson plant. So this was going to be a new plant, and it was going to require building a railroad. Right. And he had also just made this big deal with Rockefeller to lease Rockefeller's iron ore fields up in Minnesota, which was going to require shipping all of this iron ore of this high quality through the Great Lakes. So then he decides to build this plant on Lake Erie, and he's going to like ship all of this iron ore from Minnesota, and then he's going to build a train line to carry it from Erie down to Pittsburgh. So everything is consolidated. Well, J.P. Morgan is looking at this, and he knows more or less if Carnegie has decided to do this, he's going to beat me because they both had enough money to pull this kind of thing off. But mm-hmm. ultimately, Carnegie was going to win. This was his world. And right. J.P. Morgan wants in on the steel, but he doesn't really want to go head to head with Carnegie. So the wheels start turning. Um, Around that same time, Schwab, who you can think of as the new Frick, he's now the CEO, he's the president of the board, he's now Carnegie's right-hand man. man. Um, He gives, there's this dinner, and he invites all of these financiers and famous millionaire tycoons to, Schwab does. And Schwab gives this after-dinner talk about the future of steel. And it's not just the steel industry that's into consolidation at this point. It's it's every industry is trying to consolidate. This is where you're starting to run into these huge monopolies. Mm-hmm. So politically, things are moving towards a more of a free market approach to trade. And so the tariffs are being reduced on all sorts of products, including steel, which Carnegie was actually behind at this point. He thought... They were producing steel at the lowest price in the world anyway. There's no need now for a tariff in America on steel coming in from Europe because it's already going to, no one's going to buy it in America anyhow because it's already cheaper to make it in America. So there's no need for a tariff. We should go towards more free market. This is sort of the way of the world. It's all kind of gradually shifting anyhow. Mm -hmm. Democrats and Republicans are all sort of at different degrees moving towards more of a free market. Well, In order then to compete with those other countries, J.P. Morgan and Schwab and many, many other important manufacturers and financiers agree that the thing to do in in these different industries, in oil and in steel, is to consolidate and get rid of redundancy and inefficiency. That if you have four mills making the same products 
sort of competing with each other, you can't as well compete with other countries. So what you should do is get rid of any inefficiencies by consolidating all four of those mills into one or two or to isolating what they're producing into one or two things. Get really good at that and undersell and continue to undersell other countries. So Schwab gives a talk about this at dinner Mm -hmm. and Morgan takes him by the elbow, pulls him into a corner and they talk for about a half hour and no one knows for sure what that's about. But shortly after that, Schwab travels back to New York and meets with Morgan. It's kind of awkward because Schwab does not want to go behind Carnegie's back, but he also knows he needs to come to Carnegie with a real offer because Morgan is interested in buying Carnegie Steel and in consolidating not just Carnegie Steel. He's going to buy all sorts of steel manufacturers. He's going to consolidate them all into one giant entity, mm-hmm. which we know as U.S. Steel, which was then, you know, had all of the hearings about antitrust he- hearings and monopolies. And that <laughs> that all comes, but it's after Carne- like, right. Carnegie has sold his small business and it's Morgan who turns it into the monopoly. That's not Carnegie. That's Morgan. And it happens in the early 1900s. So Schwab is trying to figure out how to meet with Morgan without being duplicitous. He's trying to sell the business, but not like out from under Carnegie. Right, right. So he meets with Morgan and Morgan says, you tell Carnegie to set the price and bring me the price. Tell him I'm interested. I'm not even going to make an offer Tell him he gets to set the price. And Schwab is like, all right, okay, what do I do? How do I get to him? So he actually asks Louise. He goes to Louise. Oh, yeah. And Louise is the person who wants what is best for Andrew. And when Andrew's going full steam ahead, competing, you know, with now this whole direction of tubes or this or that, she knows in the long term, like his health is just not going to be able to sustain this. So Louise thinks about it realizes this might be a good idea that Andrew has more time with the family. And um, she advises Schwab that maybe if he invited Andrew to go golfing for a day, he might be able to just slip it in there, just get him out away from the office and on the links. And that would probably be the best venue to do that. And she encourages Schwab to make sure Andrew wins the game. He did not like to lose golf. He wasn't that good at it. I mean, he wasn't bad, but, you know. By virtue of being a Scotsman. (laughs) Right. He he imagines he has an edge here. That's right. And he just did not like to to lose at golf. So she said, make sure he wins and then sit him down and tell him about it. So they do. And um, at first, Andrew, just for really a few minutes, he's a little resistant But he's sort of been coming around to this for years. And that one deal that fell through that Frick and Phipps tried to force on him put the idea of a big payout in his mind. And he's also getting older and he's thinking, I need to actually give away all my money before I die. There's so much money to give away that it's actually going to be kind of hard to give it all away intentionally, making sure it gets to the right people and does the right thing. I mean, one could just write a couple of checks and be done with it. But he was very adamant that this really had to do good. He wanted to help better mankind. And that's a tall order. And you can't really do that as a as a part-time thing. 
So he knows he's actually running out of time just to give away his money. <laughs> so he's like, oh, I guess, okay. It's, you know, it's his baby. He's selling right. his baby. He doesn't want to do that. But he knows this is the right time. And Morgan has the money. And he's one of the only men on earth. Him and right. Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, they are the only men who have the ability even right. to buy Carnegie Steel. So... He gets a piece of paper and he writes down his price and sticks it in an envelope. Schwab takes it to Morgan and Morgan opens it up and nods and says, tell him I'm in. Wow. And there's no negotiating at all. It's simply name your price. And you know how I talked earlier about it's tricky to evaluate a company. This just goes to show not when it's the biggest and the best and in Morgan's mind, he's going to consolidate it with these other big firms. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just, you can't actually overvalue it because he's about to have an, a monopoly. Right. You know? Right. Now, Carnegie did not actually want to meet with Morgan because Morgan was one of those despicable men who had mistresses. Right. And he also was a man who made money from money on the stock market, and Andrew did not respect that. So he did not actually want to meet. So all of the details were set up by Schwab. And there was just a 15-minute meeting at the very end of the process where Morgan invited Carnegie to come to Wall Street. And Andrew says, I don't think that that would be appropriate. It's the same distance from Wall Street to Fifth Avenue as it is from Fifth Avenue to Wall Street. Why don't you come here? Oh, wow. So he won't even go, you know, just he does not really want to do business with Morgan. But, you know. Things being as they are. So Morgan comes to him. They meet for 15 minutes. And as they're leaving, Morgan shakes his hand and says, congratulations on being the richest man in the world. He had just paid Carnegie $400 million for Carnegie Steel. Wow. Andrew's personal wealth at peak was $380 million. That is back then. That is in 1901. Right. So... What that means in today's money is $309 billion. (laughs) $309 billion. For context, Money, the magazine Money, ran a piece about the 10 richest Americans right now. The three top people on that list, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, they have combined, all three of them combined, have $290 billion. So Andrew alone had more than the three richest Americans right now. Well, that much money, like it becomes almost problematic. What, how are you going to manage these amounts? Exactly. He actually said, I'm not going to grow old piling up, but in distributing. So uh, he immediately gives $5 million. The very first thing he does is he gives $5 million to the steel workers of his old mills. $1 million to keep up the libraries, music halls, reading rooms, swimming pools, all those things he had already built for them. And the other $4 million as an emergency relief fund for employees who need pensions and disabilities or just who right. find themselves in need. And it was written into that gift that the trustees were able – it was meant to be discretionary. You know, you have been a loyal, good employee. Something has happened to you. It was case by case is what right, I'm saying. Right. Not a pension that every single employee would get, but – no, it's always kind of a hallmark of how he gave money is he always felt that there had to be some kind of 
buy-in. Yes, indeed. Yeah, he actually said about this, I make it as an acknowledgement of the deep debt I owe to the workmen who have contributed so greatly to my success. So he does that. And interestingly yeah. enough, the newspapers say, what are you going to do? Who are you going to give your money to first? And, and he says, oh, I don't know. I have to think about it. He's already done this. Right. But he doesn't make a big public thing about it. He just does it quietly and immediately. That's a very nice move. And I think he must have been thinking about that for a long time. He had a couple things that he knew he was going to do immediately. And this was the first one. On that happy note, we are going to leave it here for the day. When we come back, we're going to pick up with how Andrew manages to make giving money away a full-time job. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to Evan Cresta for editing and mixing this episode. Join us at our Facebook group or at onceuponalifetimepodcast.com. Podcast.com.